All right, well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, Colossians chapter 2 is uh, where we are today. We're finishing chapter 2 of Colossians in our series on Colossians that we have creatively entitled Colossians, <laughs> Rejoicing in the Supremacy of Christ in All Things. Um, a couple things before we get going on that, I want to uh, just piggyback on Reynolds' uh, uh, announcement about water baptism next Sunday. Listen, that is really huge. Um, we live in the buckle of the Bible belt, and a lot of times glorious, profound, necessary, and huge biblical truths like water baptism are sort of assumed in our culture, and um, watered down, no pun intended, and, um, and it just kind of becomes sort of like what we do, and we lose the power and the richness of it. Let me say this as plainly as I can and with as much grace as I can, but as a heart of a pastor to help you, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have repented and believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you are a Christian and you have not been water baptized, you need to be water baptized. Not because it will save you, but because Christ commands it as a way in which the Christian proclaims to the church, encourages the church, proclaims the gospel. What happens in our culture is because many churches don't teach it or emphasize it well, is that people become Christians and then there becomes a long period of time between them actually becoming a Christian and then maybe learning about water baptism, and then it becomes kind of too embarrassing for them to go back and be water baptized. Friends, if that is your mentality, you are letting your pride and social whatever prohibit you or inhibit you from obeying Jesus. That is a bad precedent to set for your spiritual life. The Bible has no category for Christians that are not baptized. So I'm not doing this to put pressure on you so that we can... Look, we don't have numbers. I don't have some office that I send stuff off to. I don't, I don't even know how many people have been baptized here. or I, I don't even know. For the good of your own soul and for the biblical faithfulness of the witness of the gospel, you need to be water baptized. And you've got this week to think about that and let the Holy Spirit sit on you and rejoice in it. All right, so that's that. And while you're open your Bible to Colossians, which is a, uh, a letter, a small little letter about halfway through the New Testament, let me also just update you on the progress of our new building in town, formerly known as Mansours, formerly known as Zoo City, almost known as Cross Point Church. <laughs> um, it is going fantastic. The uh, walls are up and they're... Uh, doing some other work, and they're going to start putting the drywall up here in a couple weeks. You can go by any time. Really, the workers are there 9 to 5 or so on a Monday through Friday. You can go in. The doors are open. You don't have to, like, check in and put a hard hat on or anything like that. Um, and uh, I'd love for you to do that. We're going to probably gather there in another couple weeks on a Sunday night and just have a, a prayer time there so you can see it. But it looks like, Lord willing, we are still on schedule 
for July as being the time that we will move in. And what Reynolds talked about, we, will, we won't have to beat that mule anymore as far as setting up. There will be other mules that we'll come up with and we will beat, no doubt. But that, that mule will not be one of them. So, all right, well, let's go Colossians chapter 2. I can tell I have some work to do today. Um, half of you are still on vacation, either physically or mentally. And um, it's a sleepy spring, kind of, oh my gosh, we got to go back to school or work tomorrow. Unless you're from Phoenix City, then you're off next week, so you're giddy with anticipation. And so um, I'm going to have to, it's a two-way street now. I preach, we open the Bible, you lean forward, listen, and hopefully we'll find Jesus in the middle. So what we're going to do today is we're going to finish Colossians chapter 2. If you are visiting for the first time today, we have been working our way through the New Testament letter of Colossians. One of the things that we like to do here is work our way through books of the Bible. That's primarily what I do in my preaching and teaching because we believe that the Bible is breathed out by God. It is literally inspired. It's God writing the book through human authors over the course of a couple about 1,500 years, 66 books, about 40 authors, and literally God is inspiring these men through his Holy Spirit to write exactly what he intends for us to receive, and it was written primarily in Hebrew and Greek, and now it has been transmitted to us in our language of English, and we believe that it is completely true, and because it's from God, who is the creator of all things and the sovereign supreme Lord of everything, it carries with it utter authority. And so for us to not read through the Bible and study the Bible and preach out of the Bible would be foolish and arrogant. So we're, gonna, we're working our way through Colossians. I realize that if you're here for the first time today, that you're kind of jumping in midstream. But hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll be able to get what, uh, what I'm saying today. And I hope that I can kind of uh, give you enough of background so that you can kind of get in on our discussion. All right, we're finishing out the second chapter of Colossians, and here's the overarching theme of this particular paragraph that we're going to read today. What I'm going to do is kind of give you a summary, then I'm going to read it, then we're going to pray, and I ask God to help us understand, and then we're going to kind of go through it verse by verse quickly, and then I've got four summary statements that hopefully will help us get our mind around what the truth is in this text, and then we'll respond in some more worship communion if you want to respond that way or prayer or whatever here's the overarching theme of this particular passage of colossians paul is writing to the colossians a group of people that he had never met remember this church was planted by epaphroditus who was his convert from ephesus who was a native of Colossae. so this young man epaphroditus heard the gospel when paul was preaching it in another city of ephesus and he received the gospel, he goes back to his hometown of Colossae and he plants this church that we now know of as the Colossian church, or maybe it's a community of people, a group of cities, but they're the Colossian church. And they started out well, but now there are some teachers that are coming into the church, whether they were people from among the church or whether they were people from outside of the church. There are people that are claiming to be Christians that are saying to this young, very fragile, very impressionable church that, yes, the gospel that you received from Epaphroditus and Paul is, is good, it's okay, it's a beginning step, but now you need to add a little bit to it. You need to, and they were kind of like super spiritual, real um, ambiguous, esoteric, kind of hard to understand people that would come and add on some other thing to the gospel and say, well, yes, 
Yes, Jesus plus this other thing, whether it was a dietary restriction or whether it was the observance of some festival or whether it was some higher learning or whatever it is. And so it's confusing these young, impressionable believers to think that they have to kind of do something else other than believe in Jesus anchor themselves in the scriptures or the writings of the apostles at that time because the Bible had not been accumulated in the New Testament, at least the Old Testament was, which points to Christ. We'll talk about that. But so there's this confusing sort of super spirituality that is taking hold in the Colossian church. And Paul is writing to them and he is saying, no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. It is that Christ has died for you on the cross. He took the punishment that should have been ours on the cross. He bore our sin because remember we talked about this last week. We talked about it a lot in chapter 1 that Christ on the cross bore the wrath and the punishment of a holy and just God the Father in our stead for all those and only those that would repent and believe and receive Christ as the sacrifice, as the substitute, as their savior from sin and judgment. And so Paul is saying is that is the gospel, not Jesus plus all these other things. And we get now into the heart of what Paul is refuting in this Colossian church. And here's the deal. We're not quite sure what it is. It's kind of ambiguous. And secondly, it's a little bit hard to make parallels to our modern day life, but we're going we're gonna to try. So let's read Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. I'll pray and then we'll work our way back through it. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And asceticism is, is a, it's not a word we use much today, but it means kind of like beating yourself up or depriving yourself of something for the sake of like being qualified to do something else. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like putting yourself through a spiritual fast or marathon so that you will, you will prove yourself religiously. These are a shadow of the things to come. Let no one disqualify you, verse 18, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, meaning Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? In other words, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Listen to this last sentence. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so what Paul is saying is that the shadow of religious effort, and by the way, today I'm going to be using the term religion a lot. And what I mean by religion, I think a lot of times in our culture is we instinctively think, oh, religion, it's that old fundamentalist, you know, 
mean-spirited Baptist church that I kind of went to VBS a few times and they were just legalists and, you know, the women couldn't wear makeup and the preacher was mad and he wore a suit and he sweat a lot and there he just yelled. Well, <laughs> um, I, I sweat a lot and I yell too occasionally. I don't wear a suit, but, but I'm not talking about that, okay? And by the way, let me just say something about that old fundamental church that maybe you grew up in that now you sort of have a distaste for. Um, let's be generous to a previous generation of people. Look, without that fundamental church, um, the American landscape of Christianity might be like Europe today in total liberalism and almost not even, not even out there. And so when I talk about religion, and I think, there's a, I think there, there is a common sort of deal in younger Christians like my age and younger that sort of, it's like a learned behavior to bash fundamental church and religion as if we all were really hurt by some church and we like we take on the hurt of somebody that we've heard about and say yeah man i grew up in this church and it was so awful and really or did you just hear that story and that's just kind of what you're saying i mean i know that some of us were hurt i'm not saying that but i'm not here to bash old time church i'm not here to bash religion when i say religion what I'm talking about is man's hour, my attempt to self-justify or make myself right before the creator of the universe. That's what I'm talking about when I say religion. I'm not talking about the fundamentalist, fire-breathing, King James-only church that, you know, you went to VBS at once and got scared away. Now, I'm not saying they don't have some issues. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But for the most part, those, that's just another generation of people trying to be faithful. So as younger people, those of us that are younger, let's be generous. We love the church here. We love every type of church. We love Baptists. We love Methodists. We love Pentecostals. We love Presbyterians. We love Episcopalians. They do some crazy things, but we love Episcopalians. We love, we love non-denominational charismatics. We love, we love, we love the church. I, I love the church. And you should love the church too, because we are part of the church. We are all part, we're all part of this body of Christ. And so that's what we're talking about with religion. And so again, in summary, Paul is saying that the shadow of religion, the shadow of self-justifying efforts to make ourselves right or to prop ourselves up on our own effort is, it pales in comparison to the substance of Christ and what he has done for us. So let me pray and we'll work our way back through it. Father, we need your help today. We desperately need your help. We're distracted. We're self-absorbed. We, we are shallow. And uh, we're hypocritical, I know I am. And we need your help today. So we need the grace that only flows from the cross. We need the power of the Holy Spirit today. We need you to come and we need you to take this simple paragraph and we need you to unpack it for us. Lord, there are cold religious hearts in here today. There are people that just are angry for some reason. They're just hard. There are husbands that are sharp with their wives. They're just insecure, and their insecurity has caused them to be uh, just rough and short. And their hearts need to, be, need to be melted to the gospel today. Would you do that, I pray? Lord, there are young, confused people in here today who just have never really heard biblical truth in an understandable way. They need desperately to hear about Jesus, to hear about grace, to hear about faith in Christ and not religion. Would you, would you make it plain to them, God? 
And Lord, all of us come with a tremendous amount of baggage from previous experiences and our own inclination towards self-justification. I know I do. Lord, I want to prop myself up in the areas in which I excel, and I want to overlook the areas in which I want to fail, and in which I fail, and then I want to magnify the areas of failure in people around me so that I make myself feel better. God, I do that all the time. Would you come help me? Would you help me do more than preach? But as I'm speaking, would you help me receive and be convicted and humbled by your word? And ultimately, before we leave this room today, God, we're not just trying to do church, Jesus. Would you come and would you show us what the substance of faith in Christ, what the gospel is, what grace is, what life and joy in you is, compared to our futile attempts at self-justification and religion? Would you help us with that? God, if there's people in this room that don't know you as their Savior, would they meet you today? Would they receive you? Would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? And for the Christians that are in here, would you encourage us and would you blow away the dust of our religious idol-making hearts? And would you help us see Jesus? And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go back up to verse 16. I'm going to work my way through these few verses quickly, then a few summary statements. Verse 16 starts off with the word, therefore, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Therefore is a word that is a conjunction. It kind of points to what happened. The reason what I'm going to tell you after therefore is because of the truth that came before therefore. It's a it's a conjunction. And, you know, if you grew up in the 70s, come on now, I've done this before here. Schoolhouse rock. You know, you listen to it just like I did. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Well, the function of a conjunction is to tell you that what comes after the conjunction is, is only true because of what comes before the conjunction. And so what came before the conjunction is what we talked about last week, is that Christ was nailed to a cross, absorbed the wrath of a righteous, holy God, and now offers forgiveness and reconciliation and joy in redemption to all those who repent and believe. And so what comes before the therefore is, is that for those who are in Christ, you are free. You are free. There is no chain of sin. There is no chain of religion. There is no chain of law. There is no handwriting of requirements against you. You are free in Christ. You are clean in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. You are reconciled in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Therefore, don't be tripped up by self-justifying religion and these teachers who are trying to lure you astray. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What's he talking about there? Evidently, what's happening is, is these teachers are coming in and they're saying that Jesus is okay, but we have to kind of mix in a little bit of the Old Testament law and you have to... Um, kind of observe the, uh, these festivals or, or these new moons. And some of these things had very good purposes in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But what, this, what these teachers are doing is they're coming in and they're teaching that some man-made effort, something that you have to do plus Jesus is what's going to make you right with God. And so you have to do that. And, 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 and this is 
absolutely wrong. Paul is saying, no, what Christ did on the cross is he satisfied all of these requirements, all of these festival requirements, everything that the Old Testament law required of us, Jesus did it on the cross. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, And worship of angels. Think of asceticism, I said it earlier, is like making your life harder for the sake of appearing more religious. There's a beautiful, um, if you follow the history of the church, you really see some trends in the history of the church that actually I think apply in the lives of our culture and in individual believers. Of course, you know that at the beginning of the first and second centuries, the church is birthed, Jesus is is he lives and he's alive on the earth. He dies, is resurrected and ascended to heaven. The church is born in about 33 AD. And then the apostles begin to spread the church all throughout the Roman Empire. The, the, the gospel is persecuted. The Roman Empire is antagonistic towards Christianity for the first couple centuries. And the church, in spite of persecution, is spreading like wildfire. And, and the gospel is going underground. Christians are being martyred in Rome, being fed to the lions. In fact, one of my heroes is Ignatius of Antioch. And right after the first, in, in, the, in the second century, like 100 or so uh, AD, he was the first recorded Christian martyr fed to the lions in the Colosseum. I have a particular attachment to that because my grandfather, my great grandfather came from Rome. And so I want to go someday to visit the Colosseum in Rome to see where Ignatius of Antioch was fed to the lions and as Ignatius who was the pastor of the church in Antioch this is free by the way you're like what are you getting into somebody's getting eaten by lions sorry this is gross but I think it's incredible and if we ever have a fifth child which um, is not likely at this point I want to name him Ignatius but where was I oh so the gospel the gospel is persecuted. Christians are being martyred. Nero is the emperor of Rome. He's skinning Christians. He's using their bodies to fuel the lamps in the streets of Rome. But in spite of that persecution, the gospel spreading for the first few centuries. And then in the mid-300s, this cat named Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome. And all of a sudden, he becomes a Christian through some sort of shady visions he has whatever it's a long story won't get into it but he comes he becomes a christian and he tells his whole army to go down to the river and get baptized and literally overnight this is a bit of an oversimplification but in the 300s ad overnight the roman empire goes from persecuting christianity to christianity being the royal empire's religion and so the church goes from being persecuted to the imperial church of Rome, and now the bishops and the elders are not underground serving the people. They're wearing robes, sitting on thrones, acting privileged. And what happened is, is there was this faithful group of guys who who reacted to that. They're called the desert monks, and they started to hate the excesses of the church. And as an overreaction to the excess of the church, they went out and lived in the desert and started beating themselves in the desert. And just like denying themselves of civilization and denying themselves of food and drink. And they were literally beating themselves in the desert. These are called the desert monks or the desert fathers. Can we say that's a, a, I mean, we get your point, but maybe a little bit of an overreaction, right? And so that's what religion sometimes does to us. And by the way, there's a lot of great stuff that comes out of those desert monks in their writings. But what we have here is the excess of a carnal new Roman church 
And we have the overreaction of these desert monks. Of course, this happened late, long after this was written. But do you see the heart of the human heart that inclines towards religion? We want to overreact and prove ourselves by beating ourselves up and making ourselves holy in the sight of other people or in the sight of God. And that's what asceticism is. And he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting that you act like you have it together, or you have to beat yourself up in Jesus, or you have to deny, or you have to, you have to just have a miserable existence in order to prove yourself. That's not Christianity, is what Paul is saying. He goes on to say they insist on this type of asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now let me just pause here. This is not a major point, but I want to do make a point here is what's probably happening here is not that these people are actually worshiping angels, but what they're probably using is angels. They're, they're saying that they have these visions of angels, these super spiritual teachers that are in the Colossian church. They're saying, hey, I've had this vision of this angel, and he's kind of like the intermediary, intermediary to a special relationship with God. And so he's kind of the go-between. And because I'm sort of the, the teacher in the community, follow me because I've had this vision. And, and so, but here's the point. And let me just kind of do this overarching thing here. Um, in Christian culture, and it still exists today, every now and again you'll come across people that just seem to be sort of super spiritual, and they just have like, like the answer to everything. They have all these strange interpretations of Old Testament texts. You hear them on TBN. Look, I'm going to say this graciously. Beware of TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. It is junk. 99.9% of it is junk. I think occasionally the commercials are okay. But the rest of it is junk. It's junk. A vast majority of it is prosperity gospel. And a vast majority of it, I think, is a modern-day incarnation of this type of over-spirituality. And... And you'll have people talking about how they've got some special inward line and they've seen some vision, whatever. Here's what I'm saying, overarchingly. Be very careful of people who purport themselves to be spiritual leaders or teachers and they talk about mystical stuff all the time like angels and demons. Now listen, I believe in angels. Hebrews tells us that there are ministering angels given to help us. I also believe in the reality of demons and demonic warfare. I believe there's an enemy that is out to steal and kill and destroy every person in this room. But an over, listen to me carefully, an over infatuation with angels and demons and the mystical is a sign generally of instability in a believer's heart. That is something we can study. That is something we can Go through the biblical text and look at, but people that are always talking about overly spiritual visions and things like that, be wary of that. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm saying that is generally a sign of instability. And Paul is saying here is that these people are going on, they're puffed up, they're sensuous, and they're really, I think, in essence, what's happening here, trying to impress you, trying to puff themselves up as teachers in this community. And ultimately what they're doing, more consequentially, is they're not prizing Christ. And he goes on to say that in verse 19. He says, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. And so what he's saying is, is they're not, they're not simple, humble, 
understandable people who are part of the church, who, who are connected, who are doing life together, who are confessing sins, who are repenting of their sins, who are serving other people. They're, they're, not, they're not regular people who you know. And by the way, you need to be known in a regular group of people, a local church. And that's where, that's where people grow. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. I like the NIV. I'm reading out of the ESV, but I like the NIV translation better. It says, if you died to the principles of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts? And so what Paul is saying here is that he's saying is these, these little rules that they're trying to tack on or bring out of Old Testament law are not the way that you're justified. They're trying to add these things on so that if you will do these things, then you will be okay with Christ. And he's saying it's not the case. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting this key phrase here, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so I want to offer four quick summary statements and then we'll respond and be done. Number one, our hearts naturally incline to self-made religion. We naturally want to justify ourselves. We naturally want to be able to work out our righteousness on our own before God because we, at our heart, are self-worshippers. Listen to this quote from, from Sam Storms. He's written this book called The Hope of glory. It's a hundred daily meditations on Colossians, and I've got several commentaries on Colossians, and this small little just devotional is far better than any of them. This is what Sam, he's a pastor in Oklahoma, says, and if he, uh, he's a tremendous preacher and teacher of the word, great writer. If you see a book with Sam Storm's name on it, I encourage you to buy it. This is what he says about this verse. There is a sense in which divine grace will always be a threat to human nature. Remember, our hearts incline not towards grace, not towards freedom in Christ. We incline towards being able to do it ourselves so that we can be proud of ourselves. We incline towards making ourselves feel good about our works, whether it's church attendance or giving or whatever. Our heart is inclined to self-justify, not to admit that we can't justify ourselves and that only Christ can do it. And so what he's saying is there's a sense in which divine grace will always be a threat to human nature. Why a threat, you ask? Because grace undermines our efforts to justify ourselves. Grace runs counter to human pride and that impulse we all feel to boast in our own accomplishments. Grace requires that we defer all praise to God. Grace undermines our best efforts at establishing a list of requirements and prohibitions that we can impose on ourselves and others as a condition on which we gain acceptance with God. Right? We do this in the church, don't, don't we? I mean, we've got our own little pet sins, but God forbid we see somebody smoking out behind the church because we all know that smoking's the one sin because I don't do it. It's the one sin that'll send you to hell. What? First of all, smoking's not even in the Bible. Number one. Number two, nicotine's a drug just like caffeine. So if you're addicted to your coffee and you're addicted to a cigarette, what's the difference in reality? I mean, come on. Can I, can I get a right on? And by the way, the same guy who's bashing the guy for smoking cigarettes is gorging stuff in his pothole at Fat Freddy's during the week. 
you. Now, now listen, I'm not advocating smoking. I think smoking's horrible for you. But I think 17 cups of coffee a day is horrible for you. And bowls of Cheetos after midnight is horrible for you. And sneaking Kit Kats out of your kids' Easter baskets is horrible for you. I mean, come on. Here's my point. Here's my point. Is this is religion. Religion is not the old stuffy fundamentalist Baptist church down the corner. Religion is picking the things that you don't struggle with and making them the thing that justifies you and looking at that other person and saying, aha! All the while, not recognizing the plank in your own eye. I've got them, you've got them. Let's all be humble. And let's try and stop smoking and let's try and stop being addicted to coffee. I mean, please don't take this as, yes. <laughs> don't. Come on. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Although I will say one of my, probably my hero in the faith, Charles Spurgeon, smoked cigars, cigars like a chimney. But anyway, I'm still struggling with that one. Anyway, that, scratch that. Anyway, listen to this. We impose on ourselves and others is the condition on which we gain acceptance with God. Grace demands only one thing. That all glory and honor and credit be given to Jesus Christ for what he has done, not for what we have done. And human nature instinctively hates that because I want to be better than you. I want my list of the things that I can avoid to be stronger than the list of things that you can avoid. I want to be happier with my own self-grit than you are with your failure and your weakness. That's religion, and that's, what, that's our flesh. Our flesh hates grace because grace crushes that. He goes on to say that that is why wherever the gospel of grace is preached, legalism, in other words, the self made attempts to justify ourselves on our own strengths and fail other people on their weaknesses, rears its ugly head. Once you declare that God has graciously provided everything we need in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that fallen human nature will rise up and protest and try to sneak in somewhere a rule or a regulation that we in our strength can fulfill or an observance or ritual that we, without God's enabling power, can perform that will enhance our spiritual standing or gain some reward that will put God in our debt. The only problem is, as Romans chapter 11 says, who can repay God? We can't put God in our debt. So our hearts naturally inclined to self-made religion. Let me just pause here and ask you, what does that look like in your life? What, what areas are you strong in that are easy for you that you find justification and pride in? And then what areas do you look down the end of your nose at other people who are weak in other areas that you're strong in and find comfort in that? If that is the case, and oh, friends, that is the case. That is the case with my heart. That is the case with your heart. That is religion, and it kills, and our hearts inclined to that. We need to recognize it. We need to repent of it, and we need to receive the grace and then extend it to others. Secondly, religion is incredibly 
deceptive. I'm going to go quickly here through this. Religion is incredibly deceptive. Because look, we, we don't... Look, I just said smoking's bad for you. Addiction to caffeine's bad for you. Stealing your kids' Easter baskets is bad for you. Sin is bad for you. Sex outside of marriage is bad for you. Taking horrible care of your body is bad for you. Hoarding your resources is bad for you. Right? And so it's, it sort of sounds like the Christian thing to say, to bash against these things and say, if you do these things, then you'll be accepted by Christ. It kind of, it kind of sounds right, doesn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, I know we're not supposed to do those things, and so what are you saying here? I mean, is the, is the opposite of that just kind of do whatever you want and Christ will accept you? No. See, religion is incredibly deceptive, and here's, here's the, the deception. This is what religion says. Religion says that I want to obey God, or that if I obey God, He will accept me. So if I do these things, if I don't sleep with my girlfriend, or if I don't get smashed on Friday night, if I don't, whatever, if I don't smoke and drink and go to rated R movies, and I, and I clean myself up, and I, and I tuck in my shirt, and I do this, then I'll be okay with God. And that kind of sounds like Christianity, sort of, but it's, it's religion masquerading as biblical truth because it's not biblical truth. Here's biblical truth. Biblical truth is, is that you can't do any of those things. You can't resist any of those things. We are utterly helpless before God, whatever our sin nature is. For some of us, it takes us that way into smoking and drinking and sex and, and licentiousness. For others, it takes us into this direction of self-pride and arrogance and whatever. But regardless, all of us fail all the time. And Christ died on the cross for our failure. And now because of what Christ has done, now I want to obey. Do you see the difference? This is what the gospel is. The gospel is, I want to obey because of what Jesus has done for me that I receive through repentance and faith. Religion says, if I do these things, then I will be accepted. You see that? They reverse the order. Religion says, if you do these things, then you will be accepted. The gospel says, when you repent and believe, in other words, consider yourself utterly helpless before Jesus receive him then you will want he will transform your life over the next 40 50 60 70 years and now your life he will give you increasing desires to live for him which includes all joy which we'll get to in just a second thirdly jesus fulfilled the law i know i got two more points quickly jesus fulfilled the law for us it's not like god just erased the law and said ah you guys couldn't do it whatever i mean that's okay no big deal. No, God's not like that. That's not part of his nature. He's righteous and holy and just. And here's what happened is God pours out his judgment for human failure on Jesus. And Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable because Jesus lived a perfect, completely law-abiding, righteous life. He obeyed the law in our stead. This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8. Let me read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, our flesh was so jacked up, the law, all these regulations, don't drink, don't smoke, go, don't go to rated R movies, don't wake up in the, you know, in the back of a car, don't mess up your life, all this kind of, don't smoke, don't whatever, all these things that we couldn't do, observe all these feasts, these new moons, these festivals, everything, do, we couldn't do that, we failed. He, it says, God did what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order, listen to verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So he sends Jesus to live it out perfectly so that he would become an acceptable sacrifice of God's justice on the cross. And Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. So now the law has been, the perfect life has been lived. Jesus lived it for us and for all those and only those who repent and believe who now point to Christ as the one who fulfilled the thing that we could never do, receive grace. And so the law is not just canceled like, ah, no big deal. The law is fulfilled in Jesus. Religion, true religion, is satisfied in Jesus for those who repent and believe. And the fourth point, and this is important in this in this sort of fundamentalist Bible culture that we live in that wants to classify and describe Christianity as sort of a joyless list of don'ts. The fourth point is that the opposite of legalism or religion or attempts to self-justify is not a license to sin, but joy in Christ. So the opposite of fundamental religion self-attempts to justify, is not, oh, come down and have this one little experience with Jesus, raise your hand in a more casual, relevant-seeming church, we'll stamp the Christian tag on you. Now go ahead, little Johnny and Susan, you can do whatever you want, whatever, you want to go get smashed, do whatever you want, just ruin your life, wreck your life, download porn, come, whatever, grace, grace, come on. No, no, it's not just you can do whatever you want, just because you raised your hand one Thursday night in youth camp. That's not the opposite of religion. It's not just freedom to indulge, but it's joy in Christ. It's the life that he intends for us. It's to now find pleasure in Christ. It's to live now according to the beautiful truths that the scriptures give us. I read this quote a couple weeks ago. Maybe it's been a couple months. And I think it bears reading again, and we'll end with this. It's written by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. And in it, C.S. Lewis talks about how we are so easily pleased with religion and these little trifle, little broken pleasures in life. And I think this really hits on this truth that the opposite of religion, license, or legalism, is not that we can do whatever we want, but that we can find true joy in Christ. Here's the point I'm trying to make, is that living for Jesus, I have found this to be true, living for Jesus is far more pleasurable, brings far more joy in this life than any other broken form of pleasure I pursued before Jesus or any other form of broken, not biblical form of pleasure that we can pursue in our life. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says in his book, The Weight of Glory, and I end with this, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it, it is, is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics. That was a philosopher who was kind of aesthetic. I mean, you had to beat yourself up. And, and Christianity is just a list of don'ts. And is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so we reject a false presentation of Christianity because we think it will steal our joy if we only live this way, if we only sleep with the person that we're married to, or if we only if we give away our money for the cause of the gospel, or we don't puff ourselves up by gossiping about other people, or if we make the life of Christ central and the supreme truth of our lives, the broken notion of religion is that somehow we will lose pleasure, but in reality, the the half-hearted pleasures of this world don't compare to the joy that Christ offers. We are far too easily pleased. Well, as I have meditated on this text, I have found that my heart inclines to the shadow of religion much more than it does to the substance of Christ. I trust that today, as we have been working through this text, that the Holy Spirit will fill in the blanks in your life and show you where you self-justify, where you prop yourself up on your strengths and look down the end of your nose at others' failures. And we reject that self-made religion. And we repent and receive grace in Christ and humble ourselves so that together as a church, we might be a more beautiful display of the grace of Jesus to a world that needs not religion, not hard self-attempts to justify, but the gospel of grace. If you are not a believer in Jesus, and that has become evident to you by the Holy Spirit, you need to repent and believe. The Bible is clear that in order to be a Christian, it's not just coming to church or doing some religious activity or even agreeing with what I'm saying, that you must turn from self-reliance and trust and repent. That means to trust, to turn and trust in Christ and to say, without Christ, without putting the weight of my life on Jesus, I am facing the sure and eternal separation of hell forever. So if you have not done that today, you can do that. We're not going to ask you to raise your hand or fill out a card or anything like that. You do. The Bible says that you become a Christian by repenting and believing. And I'm not about to just slap a saved tag on you just because you raise your hand to respond to a prayer. That's not biblical. I believe that it happens in an instant, but you will bear out the truth or the genuineness of your salvation And the reception of this truth by how you live. And so God knows. God knows. I don't need a stat. But if you are not a Christian and it's evident to you today, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Say, Jesus, I've messed it up. I self-justify. I trust only what you did on the cross for my salvation. Come into my life now and become my Lord and Master. I give you my life in response to your cross and resurrection. Do that, friends, as I pray. And if you're a Christian, I pray that, like me, the Holy Spirit would convict you of the shadows that we hide in and that we would come out from the shadows and sink our teeth into the substance of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, for Paul's wisdom that you gave him.
I simply pray two things right now. Number one, that for those that do not know you in this room today, that they would repent and believe. That it would become clear to them that they are trying to justify themselves by religious works or their morality or whatever. And utterly, God, that, will all, that always fails. There is only one person who was moral enough and righteous enough, and it was Jesus. And he died, he allowed his body to be slaughtered on a cross as punishment for our, our lack of morality, our attempts at morality, our self-righteousness and our pride and our sin. And so God, right now, would you help those people trust in what Christ did alone and not their own merit? And would you cause them to be born again? Would you make them new? Would you take their trespasses and their sins and their rebellion and their arrogance and their self-righteousness? And would you, as Psalm 103 says, remove it as far as the east is from the west and make them your child now? Repent and believe, friends. Repent and believe. And secondly, Lord, I ask that those of us that already know you, that are your children in this room today, that you would renew, that you would break off the scales of religion from our eyes, that you'd blow away the dust of self-righteousness and arrogance and pride. And would you put your finger on the areas that we are arrogant and self-righteous about, and would you humble us? And would you cause our humility and the grace that we receive from you and the grace that we extend to others... Would you cause that to mix together like these joints and ligaments that Paul talks about so that we would grow together as a family of faith in Christ and we would be a greater display of your love in a community that doesn't need religion, they need Jesus. Would you help us do that? Would you help us repent as well of our pride, our laziness? And would we receive your grace afresh today? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.